0: War is getting sneakier. That's the future of war. And we're getting into an era where the weapons that matter most are not the ones that shoot, but the ones that give you plausible deniability. But we need warriors. Warriors are not gonna be outdated. They're not gonna be obsolete. Warfare may change, but warriors do not.
1: Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. I'm your host, Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of the Army Mad Scientist Initiative. And I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Sanisberg, of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within the Army Futures Command. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Sean McFate, author, novelist, and expert in foreign policy, and national security strategy about changing the paradigms of warfare. Dr. McFaight is a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. So we're happy today to be joined by Dr. Sean McFaight. Great to be here. All right. So, you know, we brought you on because obviously you've done such a credible amount of work in this space. Um, a lot of the greatest experts in this field have really said, this is the new Sun Tzu. This is how we have to think about the ways of warfare. The conventional ways are gone. So in your book, New Rules of War, it was a 2019 book of the year in The Economist. You're coming out with the paperback at the end of January. Um, it's really been widely heralded as a new way to think about warfare. So you, serve. As an active duty military trooper, you've been a private military contractor, you've worked in business, academia. Is this is this wide variety of experience, to, has that helped you envision those new rules of warfare, or is it something else? What 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 is this paradigm and how did you get there? No, it's it's interesting.
0: I mean, I, I think my I have career ADD. <laughs> i just kind of I started off as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. My battalion commander was a young lieutenant. Colonel Stanley McChrystal. And my brigade commander was first uh, Colonel John Abizade, now the ambassador of Saudi Arabia, and followed by Colonel David Petraeus.
1: I think we might have heard of those fellows. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I was, you know, I was a young lieutenant, and I thought it was awesome. I mean, I had a great time in the Army, loved my platoon, did a lot of rock marching under those gentlemen. Um, but then I, I got out, I worked for Amnesty International, strangely enough. I saw a new type of warfare from their point of view. Uh, I then went to graduate school at Harvard, which I thought at the time was the worst mistake of my life. <laughs> I uh, ended up dropping out of Harvard to go to Africa, working for a private military company to raise small armies for U.S. interests, doing things that traditionally were the, the domain of the CIA, SOF, et And I, And also working in African wars, you see war in a completely different way than, say, the U.S. military does. Um, and all these things together with some other things, I work with private intelligence firms in the Sahel. Uh, I've worked for companies. Um, I saw it as I was a, a, sort of like a, a highly functioning generalist who saw war in a new way, in a way that sort of like very refined experts in D.C. do not see it. And these experiences over a lifetime, over
1: 25 years, sort of produced this book, The New Rules of War. That's fantastic. And such really unique experience. So, you know, being in, uh, working in an army program, and we talk to a lot of senior military leadership and people who have experienced operations around the world, um, but you really bring a, a unique vantage point in the sense that you had that experience in Africa, that you've worked with the private military companies. Uh, you're not just speaking out of uh, observation, but really experience. So, you know, you have 10 rules, and they're all fascinating. And I know this has to be like picking your Favorite child, uh, but when you're thinking about the changing character warfare, what the U.S. Army has to face in 15 years, you know, we really look at the future of warfare with mad scientists. Um, what What do you think out uh, of those 10? What are the two that are really most quintessential? Oh dear, I hate these questions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't make it. <laughs> more- <laughs> I mean, what, the, the 10 rules kind of work as a set. And um, so I think the, the two rules I would go for are um, the first rule, which is conventional war is dead. Because this is the rule that you know, kind of cracks the paradigm for which I think the Pentagon's a prisoner of conventional war. There's a, a saying that generals always fight the last war especially if it's one they they want it. And when we think about what is our paradigm of warfare today, and I don't mean just flag officers, I mean the United States of America the general public, that war, our last successful war was World War II. Every year there's yet more World War II movies out. And this remains the model, both in doctrine and everything else, this remains the model of how war ought to be fought. Uh and when you think of and that's conventional war. World War II is conventional war, interstate, traditional, military-military, Klauswitzsian way of warfare where utility of force is supreme and everything else kind of falls behind it. Um despite the fact that in the last 70 years, nobody fights us for anywhere. I mean, if you look at the data, and I have, and it's in the book. The last seven years of war, if you look at trends in modern war from 1945 to today, interstate, traditional, conventional wars flatline, whereas everything else just spikes and has been spiking for 70 years. Yet we want to fight like the glory days, like it's forty-five. And if you and, if, and I like to say that budgets don't lie. If you look at the DoD's budget um, and what they're buying, it's all conventional weapons: F 35s surface warships, you know, uh, helicopters, things that work great in the battlefield. Despite the fact that the U.S. has the best military, but frankly, we have to admit it it struggles. Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, you name it, we struggle. And the reason we struggle is because we're fighting conventionally and our, 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 our enemies have moved on. So no wonder Afghanistan's the longest war in American history. Uh,
2: so, Sean, would, uh, based on what you just said, you mentioned the F-35, programs like that, we're, we're thinking in terms of capital systems. Um, what, what would be a way to adapt to that? Are you looking more at um, uh, smaller, cheaper, disposable types of items, or how do we counter that?
0: Well, it's a good question. So rule number two, which is not the rule I would choose from a second rule, but uh, yes. It, but rule number two is... Um, is that technology will not save us. And there's, you know, part of the American way of war, going back to Russell Wagley and other scholars, has always been technology. And it's because of who we are as Americans. In the 19th century, we were a frontier culture, which is resourceful. You know, we, we built, we made the airplane and the automobile. I mean, we, we are inventors and we place a lot of faith, I say too much faith, in technology. War ultimately is armed politics. And t- there's no technical solution to armed politics. And again, last 70 years of warfare, Luddites have been routinely besting high-tech militaries, and not just ours. Look at the French in Algeria and China, look at Great Britain in Palestine and Aden, look at the Soviets in Afghanistan. I mean, technology is not decisive. Um, so I don't. I'm not a at myself. I think we need technologies, but we're investing in the wrong ones. So we don't need big capital, like we don't need four-class carriers, F-35s, littoral combat ships, and better uh, artillery. We already have the best. Let's do. Th- we need things to contend with modern war, and the way you win in modern war, battlefield victory gives you very little in modern war. And we already have the best of the best, um, with the best troops, the best technology, the best resources. Now, modern war is being fought and won in the domain, uh, in information domain, and we need technologies that make humans savvier consumers of of information. Uh, and that's a difficult that's a difficult thing, but that's what we should be looking at.
1: So we can't let you, let you off the hook. What's the second one?
0: Oh, my goodness. So that's a tie. Um, not to be all political, po- uh, congressman-y and we's like, uh. Um, Truman used to say well, I always wanted a one-handed economist because I was saying one hand, blah, 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 the other hand, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, I would say that the next... I would say the next big rule is that mercenaries are returning and they are changing warfare. Uh, and I say this again as somebody who used to be in that world for many years. Um, and I got out because I, I, it's even scarier than most people think. Most people in the Pentagon, I remember when I was at Harvard, my, uh, my, my advisor, my thesis advisor Was Ash Carter, who became the Secretary of Defense, and this is a little bit before he ten years earlier, and I remember having this discussion. At that moment, we had just entered Iraq. There was a situation. Blackwater, like called the Fallujah Four, got killed, and and I said, you know, America, you know, you know, Dr. Carter, America is investing heavily in these private military firms. You know, what happens when we're done with them? Where do they go? And his attitude, which I think still represents a lot of senior leadership today, is that oh, they're like cheap army reservists. When when they're when we're done with them, they'll just reintegrate into the civilian workforce. I'm like, but that's not what they are. They're not army reservists. After you know, like the end of World War II, right? These are profit-maximizing entities, and they go and seek new clients. And our heavy usage of these contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan has bred a worldwide free market for force that we don't think about even our intelligence community doesn't even collect on it even though that's how modern war is often fought and we can talk about about how and why but here's the deal when you privatize war it changes warfare because suddenly you're mixing military strategy like Clausewitzian strategy with market strategy like CEO type stuff and our four stars cannot like they don't understand this it's like for them to even think about it, it's like watching a dog pick up a basketball it's just too hard, right? Um, and and so warfare is changing, and we're we're sort of mired in the past still. So I want to I want to pull that thread a little bit. So yeah. you think
2: uh, private military companies may be uh, uh, on the rise here? So what does that future look like? What does it look like when the operational environment is is state and state actors, non-state actors, and then these PMCs as well?
0: Okay. So when 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 you have yeah, when you commoditize conflict, you create supply and demand. You create a market for force. supply for sort of mercenaries. However you want to define them, academia has, has wasted way too much ink on what is a mercenary versus a private military contractor. Ultimately, if you can do one, you can, do, you can be the other, right? So you know, it's the same sort of group of people. And then it creates a demand as well because suddenly there's this new shiny tool in the toolkit, people start to grab it. And it's not just countries, it's also the super rich. So when you have mercenaries, it allows a super-rich to become a superpower. And we're already seeing that as oligarchs and super-rich people start to hire them, but also the extractive industry and others, you know. Um, mega churches may hire them in the future to, to do a humanitarian intervention someplace if they think the international community is, you know, being lethargic, which it's been known to do. Look at Darfur and the Congo and Syria. and So I think what we're seeing... And mercenaries don't want to work themselves out of a contract. And we have lots of examples from history, particularly in the Middle Ages and antiquity, where mercenaries were the way you fought war, where mercenaries would start or elongate wars for profit. Um, And 30 years war is a magnificent, horrific example of what that looks like. And we're heading back to that world today.
1: What I think is interesting, Sean, is one of the things we talked about, and we've done some work with you recently in terms of how we look at competition and conflict, and it kind of aligns with what you've talked about in the book, that conventional and traditional warfare is dead, um, and, and we're looking at competition, and we have to win in these spaces. Do you think there's a role, or what role is there for these mercenary PMC groups to be able to help us win in competition? How do we deter? How do we win in those spaces? with those private military contractors. Wow, there's there's a lot in that question to unpack, right? (laughs) How do we win? What's the
0: future of war look like? All these things. War is getting sneakier. That's the future of war. And we're getting into an era where the weapons that give you the most, you know, the weapons that matter most are the ones, are not the ones that shoot, uh, but the ones that give you plausible deniability. So plausible deniability is eclipsing firepower when it comes to victory, strategic victory. An example of this is look at Russia. I mean in the old rules of war, if you want to call them that, in the Soviets, when they wanted to put their heel on somebody's neck, they marched in the tanks, they rolled in the tanks. Think of Hungary 1956, Czechoslovakia 1968. Now, when they wanted to do that recently in Ukraine, they could have done a blitzkrieg. Their military could have taken over Ukraine's weak military. But they didn't do that. What they did is they used weapons that gave them plausible deniability, uh, like mercenaries, like the Wagner Group, like special forces, like Spetsnaz, uh, like little green men, like these fake proxy militias, like the astroturfing of of eastern Ukraine, and lots of propaganda and active measures to to. Befuddle everybody about what was really going on. Donbass resistance exactly. So they created the fog of war and stepped through it for victory. And the reason this worked is because we live in a global information age. And a global information age, if if you can create plausible deniability, that's better for you strategically than having ten thousand tanks roll into an you know a foreign power's you know somebody else's land. Um, and by the time you know the IC, the intelligence committee saw all this. But policymakers were reluctant to sort of declare war to nuclear power Russia without knowing fully the facts. And the Russians used the strategic deception for victory. So things mercenaries give you good plausible deniability, as do these other things. And that's the type of wars we need to prepare for. War is going underground. It's what I call shadow warfare. And we have to go underground a little bit to contend with it and compete with it.
1: Let's say a future conflict ongoing all the time and we want to use a private military contractor, we're using mercenaries to try and wage this new these new ways of war. What are the moral and ethical dilemmas that we have to deal with in order to make this happen? What what's going to be the roadblocks? Can the American people stomach it? Well, this in some ways is
0: essential question and one that my book raises and brackets but does not answer because there's that's a different book it's a bigger conversation i i'm a war observer i'm observing war goes underground i'm not advocating for it i'm just watching it and i'm saying that we also have to go into the shadows and punch back it's not good enough to simply be on defense all the time we can't just be a goalie dodging penalty shots. That's not a way to victory. (laughs) Um, uh, So we have to get a little tough, like we did during the Cold War, to be frank about it. Uh, We've forgotten that in 25 years. Um, But here's the problem that we also learned in the Cold War, and I think you put your finger on it very well, is that secrets and democracy are not compatible. So if war is getting more secretive, how do we fight that without losing our democratic soul? And I explain in the book how you fight it, But I don't explain how we maintain our democratic soul. I think we can do it with certain compromise. We can do it, but that needs more thought needs to be put into that. But the answer simply can't be categorically, we're not going to do it at all. I think that's
1: literally the, the path to loserdom. Look for uh, Sean's sequel to that in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, looking at it, we have a wide audience in terms of um, throughout the Army and the, and the larger DOD. Um, and a lot of the work we do when we're envisioning the future, um, this is sounds kind of counterintuitive, but the work we're doing in some sense is not for the soldiers of today. The work we're doing is for the soldiers of tomorrow. So So there are people um, that are still in high school, middle school, and beyond that are going to be the soldiers who are going to have to fight and operate. And regardless of how much PMC we leverage, they're still going to be a part of this. So I think with with everything you've learned and everything you've written in in this phenomenal book, you're talking to that recruit or young soldier of 2030. What does that young lady or gentleman need to know about the new rules of war? How can they operate in that new world? The first thing I would say is that the future war does
0: not look like war is past. Um, you know going into World War I, the great powers of Europe are still practicing Napoleonic horse drills uh, and that the young people of today they are the future uh, and usually it takes a country a lot of blood to change its way of war, which is one reason I wrote this book we can we can be smarter than that, so I would say warfare is getting sneakier, victory goes to the cunning and not just the strong. But we need warriors. Warriors are not going to be outdated. They're not going to be obsolete. How Warfare may change, but warriors do not. We still need heroes. We need courage. We need leadership. And again, there's no technical solution for good leadership at the tactical level, at the strategic level, at every level. Um, so the future is theirs. I would recommend uh, that, you know, I'm not alone in this, my ideas of the new rules of war. There's an intellectual insurgency brewing right now amongst the, inside the armed forces, outside of it as well, and across other countries too. People who are younger see that war does not look like what's being taught in political science and not what's being taught in war colleges. It looks something more like the
1: new rules of war,
0: and I'm not the sole author to highlight it.
1: That's phenomenal advice, and uh, we have a couple questions for you that we we will ask all our guests some of them are uh maybe more easy and some of them are going to be difficult uh what what technology or trend uh and as you said technology is not the panacea so what technology or trend really keeps you up at night um that really makes you concerned for the future geez there's so many buzzwords around technology disruptive technology uh what
0: what matters what matters to me is that we are like magpies. We're like look. We're like dogs looking for squirrels, right? And we think that these these sort of conventional war high tech weapons or G whiz technology. We need technologies that make people smart because. Victory now is not one in battlefields, it's one in the information space. And the strategic, I mean, it, it's not just Russia, it's many countries try to meddle in our elections, try to influence our own strategic narrative within our, our, our the domestic borders of our country. And the strategic logic is this. Who cares about the sword if you can manipulate the arm that wields it? So we don't have to worry about blitzkriegs, we have to worry about countries coming in and messing in our domestic politics. We have a culture war going on in our country right now. Democracies are messy, that's fine, if if that's a domestic dispute. It's not fine if foreign countries are fanning those flames. So we need our technologies that make us smart about What those you know? Who's behind those flames? Uh, And I'm worried that we are blind to it. So it's not that I think we have a magical technology that we should be worried about. I think it's more of a it's a cognitive bias in our own head, and we need technologies that that sort of share show light on on that. You know, for example, this is a bit of a long answer to your very simple question. Here's a technology I think would be awesome. We all wear clothes. Our clothes have a label on them or they're made. Made in China, made in Bangladesh, made in Vietnam. We all know the problem of clickbait. What if we had the same type of thing for clickbait? This clickbait was made in North Korea. This clickbait was made in Iran. Would that hopefully reduce people clicking on deliberately misleading strategic communications? So those are the type of technology I think we should be looking for and i think there are smart people out there with those good ideas but nobody's really listening to them enough in the national security establishment tying it into
1: policy and
0: tying it into the the way we operate so
2: sean how do you think we do a better do a better job of getting those voices heard and how do we how do we get those answers from those folks
0: well there uh, peter drucker is a management consultant he said that culture eats strategy for breakfast our national security strategy is mired in conventional warfare. It's mired in technology. And we've tried to break through this. We have things like DOIX and stuff like that in in, uh, in California that, that tries to draw in entrepreneurs. Yet sort of the, the military industrial oligarchy in D.C., Raytheon, Lockheed, who provide us our new secretaries of defense, it looks like. They sort of either try to take it over or squash it and say we need F-35s. So I think you know, trying to break, it's a cultural question, it's not a technological question of how do we, how do we listen to voices who have something new to say, who are not traditional military backgrounds, are not retired sixes who are now working for a big name military company. Sometimes it, it takes, frankly, a spanking to get there, and I hope we don't have to endure that.
2: Okay, so if you'll allow, could yeah. um, we can get a little bit personal, what's something about you that most people might not know?
0: My real passion is opera.
2: Okay. Wow. Yeah,
0: I'm a big opera zealot. And uh, I used to have his blog like 10 years ago, his uh, amateur blog. Um, called My Two my two Passions War and Opera uh, and I got featured in NPR actually believe it or not it was um, but I think uh, war I grew up as a violinist actually so okay. when I was I was going to ask how this manifested yeah, my parents weren't into classical music at all I, I don't know where the classical music gene came from but um, when at age 9 I went to a, a, I went left home to go to boarding school in Manhattan a musical boarding school it was a theater school for Juilliard and other schools and my life passion at that point is that I I'm going to be... I'm going to be Yasha Heifetz. I'm going to be Isaac Stern. I'm going to play Carnegie Hall at age 17, Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto. And then I had my first midlife crisis at age 13, when I realized that no matter how much I practiced, I'd never be Yasha Heifetz. I'd never be Isaac Stern. Uh, so I, I gave it all up. Um, but I retained the passion for it. And frankly, the discipline of the violin made it very easy for me to go into the military. Uh, people like, how could you be a violinist on this one track and then end up as a paratrooper? Eh. It's so a lot of similarities. If you're like a, a young, like Olympic-style, like training camp, if you will, uh, it actually was good preparation for the military.
2: That's very cool. I wasn't expecting that. So that's, that's awesome to know. And finally, we give you some time to think about this.
0: Yes. What is your favorite movie? Uh, this is a terrible question. I mean, it's a hard, it's a good, it's a good terrible question. I don't have a. Guess depends what what day a week. Uh, it's like asking what's my favorite opera. Um, look, I, I um, there there are two movies. I was like when I was younger, as a kid, that really inspired me. One was like dark, and one is sort of light. The dark movie was uh, based out of one of my favorite books. It's called you know it's uh, it's it's my favorite book was Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad turned into Apocalypse Now, and I think. You know, and when I was a kid. I was never into playing soldier or GI Joe and like that. I was kind of a nerdy kid. I was in the library reading encyclopedias, actually. But I was very uh, obsessed, almost, with Conrad and Apocalypse Now. And in some ways, that kind of fed not just to become a warrior, but from my experiences, actually in Africa, where I got to work some of that out. And I don't know what that says about me. I'll let your, your listeners do their psychological analysis. But um, I, I wanted to be like Marlowe in some ways and sort of peek over the edge of darkness, but not fall into the pit the way Kurtz did. Um, and I'm still working through what that book was and that movie was really about. Um, second, on a more light note, uh, is the movie Shawshank Redemption, based on a Stephen King book. And Stephen King's not my favorite author, a little dark, kind of twisted main, maniac. Um, but, uh, but it's an it's a inspirational and hopeful movie that I also love. Uh, And those who have not seen it before, especially younger folks, it came out in the late 80s, I think. But it's it's about somebody who doesn't give up, who overcomes incredible odds and, and wins in the end. And we all like winners. That's
1: fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. Two wonderful movies. Yeah, yeah. Great absolutely. Movie. Uh, now, are, are you watching the Redux of Apocalypse now? Do you set aside about four hours? No, I have not. No, I, well, there's every ten
0: years as a new like director's yeah, you, cut comes version. out, and I yeah. end up buying them somehow. And I mean, there's this one where they have a good Cambodian scene that was cut mm-hmm. from the movie. But yeah.
2: So, Sean, is there anything yeah. else you'd like to you'd like to tell us uh, before we end this?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, I would say this: that I wrote the book, The New Rules of War, uh, not to become retro famous. That doesn't happen if you're Author. I did it because I want to move a needle on how we think about what is war today. I mean, if you look at things like even South by Border, like what's going on in Mexico with narcos, that, that's warfare. We just don't, it doesn't match our traditional way of war, and this inhibits us from responding to it correctly. So we could have the best military in the world, and we do, but if you don't have the strategic IQ to wield it, you're like the French with their Maginot Line. And that's why I wrote The New Rules of War. Let's not be the French in 1940.
1: This has been just an incredible conversation, uh, really intriguing. We're going to have a hard time cutting it down at all. Um, we really want to thank you, Dr. McFaith, for coming and talking to us today. The book is phenomenal. If you haven't checked it out yet, uh, The New Rules of War, it's coming out in paperback at the end of January. And thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. You can follow us on Twitter, at Army MadSci. Be sure to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.no.